August the 10th, 2014, lecture discussion number 164 on the book of Romans. Well, uh, let's see. Last Sunday I spent recapping Joshua 5 and 6. That's where we are today, Joshua 5 and 6. And you may not think so. You might think we're in Joshua 7. So I'll go ahead and put 7s there. We're also at Romans 9 because there is a direct connection between Romans 9 and Joshua 5, 6, and 7. We're also, uh, last week I threw in a little Exodus 4, which is where Moses and Zipporah are confronted by Christ with regard to uh, the uh, circumcision of their son. Uh, we did a little Genesis 33 because of uh, Esau, Luke 15, 20, specifically because there's loose, uh, Esau there as well. And the plan was to remind everyone how it is that we have arrived here at Joshua 7. Now, once we get through Joshua 7, we're on our way to the Pharaoh of Romans 9, uh, 17 through 20, essentially, but 17 mostly, so that we can correctly understand Romans 9:18. Romans 9:18 says this, Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. It's one of the difficult uh, scriptures in the Bible. Sadly, it's difficult. It shouldn't be. But it's uh, commonly misinterpreted, uh, and you'll find that misinterpretation to be uh, the norm and not the uh, rarity. And hopefully, obviously, as opposed to just obviously, many of you have already figured out, uh, have already deduced my method of arriving at the true meaning of Romans 9.18, how it is that I'm going to solve the meaning of that verse, God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And the way to do it is to exhaust the preceding contextual references. Don't pick that verse out unless you look at what has come in front of it and what will come behind it, Uh, certainly that which is adjacent, but you'll have to go back in both directions quite a bit in order to uh, uh, figure out the exact meaning of it. And that's why we have uh, Jacob and Esau and the Pharaoh on the table here. Because you see, the student of Scripture who truly wishes to understand always attempts to be certain of the context that that verse is surrounded by before deciding on the meaning of the verse. And that's especially one such as Romans 9.18 or Romans 9.21 and others that are like that. Again, God, he wills to have mercy on some. Why? Why does God have mercy on some? Why does God choose to spare some from the second death? Notice how I said that. Why does God choose to spare some from the second death? That's the why are any saved question. You've got to start there, right? Why is anybody saved at all? Should, should anyone get any salvation? So you've got to start there. And once you've got that worked out, Why does he choose uh, to spare some from the second death? And obviously Joshua 6 and 7 and Joshua 2 provide much needed information on that subject. Uh, The example being Rahab, Achan, and their families. Rahab and her families are saved from the first death. Achan is not saved from the first death. Again, notice how I'm saying Aren't I? I'm differentiating between physical death and uh, supernatural death. <clears throat> the inverse of the question, why does God choose to spare some, 
from the second death? The inverse of that question is likewise relevatory. Why does God not spare someone? Why is it that some are not spared? Some are spared, some are not spared. Why does God cast them away? What's the answer of the church? What's the church say? Mostly. Some do not, but mostly they say what? What's that? Yes, absolutely right. For those of you on the internet, uh, the answer predestined. And so I ask this question. Is God arbitrary? Is he impetuous? Is he erratic? And so many churches teach that today. And my answer to them is don't think stupidly. I get in trouble by calling people stupid, so I have to say, I have to be uh, refined now. I have to say don't think stupidly. That gives you me a little escape room as opposed to don't be stupid. As you know, my favorite saying is John Wayne, life is hard and it's a whole lot harder when you're stupid. That's the way the Bible is too. You start making ridiculous, nonsensical conclusions and you've got problems. And there are so many today that think God is just arbitrary and uh, impetuous, capricious, whatever, erratic, whatever term you want to put in, and that is thinking stupidly. God is pure goodness. He does have none of those characteristics in him. And if you came to that conclusion, then you are in the ditch. There's company for you. You'll have friends there. Now, ask the next logical question after you've thrown aside that emotional nonsense that God is arbitrary or whatever other reasons you might have. Ask the, uh, the logical reason question. Because he does say to us, start reasoning your way through this in Hebrews. I've given you the ability to reason. Don't respond emotionally. Start reasoning. That's what I love about uh, uh, C.S. Lewis upon the death of his wife. You know, remember he said, uh, he rails at God for a while in his book. And then he says, okay, enough of this nonsense feeling stuff. It's time to start thinking. And then he goes on with this amazing exposition of of existence and immortality. Okay. What is the difference between those who are given mercy and those who go on to hardening? What's the difference? Why do some become hardened? Why are others given mercy? What's the criteria? Do unbelievers become hardened so that they are then lost? So in other words, is God looking at somebody and going, got to harden him because he's in the lost pile? Is that the purpose of hardening? Or do they become hardened because they are, they have chosen to be lost? What's the, and by the way, the solution is not fatalism, which is what so many churches teach. They say there is no impact here. It is pre, it's been prejudged. You cannot be anything but what you are. And that is a fatalistic approach. You were going to ask a question? Yes. What is hardness? Hardnessness is my favorite word there. What does it mean to be hardened? How does God define that? But let me get fatalism off the table. 
Because ultimately, uh, I have had many people say, hey, listen, God has decided uh, whom is saved before they are even in existence, and there's nothing I can do about it. There's no impact I can have. And that is, again, the philosophy of fatalism. That, by the way, is very common in monist uh, philosophy, or evolutionary philosophy. There is no hope. There is nothing but death. And therefore, go and, and do whatever you want. There are no consequences to it, and there's no advantages or disadvantages uh, life is useless and purposeless. That is fatalism. You find fatalism in the uh, in the atheistic community, and you find fatalism in the church community. It's fascinating how it's all kind of meshing together as we get to the age of Laodicea, Revelation 3.16. So many today, many, many, many today teach that it doesn't matter what one believes. It doesn't matter what, whether one believes God doesn't matter if uh, you believe what God says about himself, and nothing matters if you believe in the character of God or believe he's good, nothing. They insist instead that salvation is based on a lottery system. And you either got a ticket or you don't. It's a lottery or a luck system and not a belief system or a faith system. So they spout this indefensible uh, stuff, and it's insulting to God. You can see that. It, it is, can't you? If salvation is a luck lottery system, then what is God? Is he fair? Is he good? Is that the best he could do, is a lottery system for salvation? And so that's insulting to God. It's drivel, and it, and it cannot be defended, as I said. And um, you'll find it with respect to the meanings of Romans 9. 17 through 20, John 2, 24 through 25, and other similar verses, which we are covering as we're moving along. And all of that is necessary, by the way, um, all, I'm sorry, all that is necessary to avoid falling, falling into the fatalism snare, uh, the foolish, irreverent thinking trap is just, just pay attention to the context. What's coming before that verse and what's coming after it? What built to it? What, what results from it? And that's what we're attempting to do. Which is why I keep asking, why was Jericho utterly destroyed? Do you see it is, you, you can choose fatalism? Why was Jericho utterly destroyed? Why was Egypt subject to the ten plagues? What does it take for the God of goodness, the God of mercy, to come with judgment? That's the same question, isn't it? Why are some hardened and why are some given mercy? It's the same question. Why was Jericho destroyed? Why are some lost? Why did Egypt have ten plagues? Why are some lost? Same question. What does it take for the God of mercy to come in judgment? Or let me say it this way. Why does the God who waits? God waits. We don't like it that he waits. I personally came to grips with that a while back when it occurred to me that the fact that he waited until 1953 years uh, after, uh, well, we can't say for sure when Christ uh, was uh, became uh, Originally, we have discrepancies, but I'm just going to go with 1953 years. I was very happy that he waited that long. It worked out swell for me. And so, yay, waiting God. 
And I have absolutely no problem with him continuing to wait. I would like him to come before my retirement that doesn't exist has to be dealt with. But if he wants to keep waiting, there's somebody out there that he's waiting for. See, that's really the question. Why does God, why does the God who waits finally stop waiting and what is he waiting for? And that's a key question to ask and it's better worded if it would be, for example, who is he waiting for? Okay, I received quite a bit of mail this week, which is always fun, more than I normally get. And pretty soon I'm going to be finished with the punishment that's my mother's house. When I say pretty soon, I have no idea. It's a it's a war zone in that place. I know I've said I'll be done pretty soon, but this time I might be closer to being right. And anyway, when that glorious day arrives, I can return to answering the phone regularly as well as answering the mail more completely. Instead of how I do it mostly, I just kind of fire little things at, as quickly as I can, and Lori takes care of most of it, and we do it. We we can. But I brought in a letter today because it was really fun. It was it's Sharon from Texas. It's her letter, and it's not really a letter. It's more like a, a monograph. It's multiple pages, so I can't read it all. She has asked uh, 12 questions about the last two lectures, lectures 162 and 163, and only 12 questions could have been a lot worse. And I thought I would pick out a couple of three of them and answer them. And you know that I'm really not going to answer them, though, right? You got that. Sharon knows that. She even says so in the letter. So I'm going to read her letter. It's uh, We haven't heard from her for a while. Not like this, for sure. And so uh, I think you'll find it fun. Uh, so here she is. I had a day off today and got an email this morning that there were two more lectures available, July 27th and August 3rd. So I had a wonderful day listening, pausing, researching, rewinding, and doing it all again, repeatedly. Yes, I know that is redundant. I have some questions, and yes, I know answers are unlikely. It's wonderful when I teach people things like that. But hey, it never hurts to try on the theory that ye have not asked because ye ask not. Number one, question number one, I firmly, and I do mean firmly, believe Israel is not replaced. That's good, Sharon, because they're not replaced. Not set aside. That's good, too, Sharon, because they're not set aside. And not abandoned forever by God. That's also true. They are not abandoned by God. They are still in a timeout, but destined to become believers in Yeshua. And that sense, then, is their sin in Matthew 12 unpardonable. So she's asking... What is the unpardonable element in the Matthew 12 if Israel, uh, if uh, the Jews will be saved during the tribulation? Question number two. Why did Jacob have to wrestle with salvation in order to get salvation? So she's correct there. Why does he wrestle with salvation? And then she adds to get salvation. Yeah. I'm going to say, why did Jacob have to wrestle with salvation? Or better, why did he wrestle with salvation? Was he saved before he wrestled with salvation? Does that make sense? Salvation is the name of Christ, for those who don't know that on, who are listening to this on the Internet. There, question number three. There is no mention of Joshua, uh, quite effectively the question that, uh, back to question two, that uh, Sharon is asking is, why does Jacob limp? Did he get salvation or did he get a limp? Did he get a name change or did he get salvation? Was he saved before he wrestled or because he wrestled? So it's a question of Jacob's limp. 
Question three. There is no mention of Joshua inquiring of God before he sent a force to Ai. If Joshua had inquired, would the Lord, would the loud silence, sorry, I said loud, or Lord said loud, would the loud silence, no response from God, have clued Joshua in that there was a problem somewhere? Would the Lord have told Joshua to get the sin out of the camp so those 36 men wouldn't have died? By the way, we're going to talk about the mystery of the 36 men today. Why would Joshua go into war without inquiring first? Question four. Joshua 7.25 said they stoned him, Achan, with stones and burned them. So she's absolutely right. Stoned him, burned them. And this is the great question of who is the them? I just I answered it already. Did you notice that? Never mind. And stoned them with fire. Why, would they have stoned Achan and burned his family? But the verse ends saying they stoned them with stones. I am not clear on the pronouns here and who got what. I was hopeful that only Achan got executed, that maybe his family was just brought to watch based on Ezekiel 18.4 uh, and 18.20, also Deuteronomy 24.16. Unless maybe Achan had corrupted his wife and children with excitement about the loot that they became co-conspirators after the fact. It doesn't even make it clear that his family knew he did it, though although I assume that living in tents burying something is pretty obvious. Or maybe the family was ignorant and Deuteronomy 7.26 applied and condemned the whole household. Question five. If the enormity of what he had done had occurred to Achan and he spent sleepless nights and then decided to confess to Joshua on his own, would the serious judgment have been avoided? He did a very good job of acknowledging his sin once exposed. He didn't try to make excuses or blame anyone else or justify it. And he confessed in public in front of all of those who suffered because of him. I wonder if they executed him with anger and enthusiasm or reluctantly with empathy and pity. That's a wonderful question. Question six, how big a deal was the Babylonish garment as compared to the silver and gold? God had specifically commanded that Jericho's silver and gold would be his, but he didn't mention clothing. Might it have belonged to the king of Babylon and just been in Jericho for which, for when he paid uh, state visits? I don't think so, Sharon. Might it have been Nimrod since he was the ruler of Shinar? Babylon and Shinar are simultaneous. Uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, uh what a, Oh, where am I? All I can come up with is synchronous. Synonyms. There we got it. Synonymous must have been what I was really thinking before I drank medicine. I believe you have taught that Esau may have killed Nimrod. Might Esau have taken Nimrod's robe from him? Now that question becomes how many robes did Nimrod have? How many did Esau get, if that's, if that's the case? The description you use of a curse versus dedicated confused me. That was on purpose, Sharon. I'm trying to confuse you because the word is translated either way. I like to use a curse, but I know that the word means devoted. Why do I do that, Sharon? Because that way I will get a letter like this. Works every time. Fish on. Okay. Then it would not have been God's possession that was stolen, but if it was dedicated, it might have been at least if it was dedicated in the sense of belonging to God. But since it got burned, it seems it was truly a curse. 
a symbol of the adversary? And my question back to Sharon is, did it get burned? Most time you burn something, that's an offering to God. Does God want that robe burned? That becomes the question. And if he doesn't, why not? And whose is it? Where does it come from? If you haven't been here, this is all Joshua 6 and 7, and, and I don't have time to read that today, but that's where we're at. And then see, uh, uh, I'll skip a few, a few here, really. The failure of the Israelites to take AI also made me think of Samson and Judges. Is that is that a connection? What does this, number nine, what does this sin in the camp teach us here? At least even Joshua didn't know what Achan had done, but today there's very little church discipline. How does it affect our success to not purge out the leaven, at least periodically? The problem, uh, Sharon, with peri- uh, cleaning out all the leaven from Cliffside is that uh, uh, we'd, be, we'd be in a lot of trouble. We're already down to so few people we can count on a couple of hands. We start purging people. We're, we're out of here. Now, that's kind of a joke, not really. Now, question number 10. Making Esau a type of God really rocked my boat. Oh, I love that part. He is profane and cares nothing for spiritual things, so how could he possibly be a type of God? The rabbis teach, and this is true, that Esau is running toward, running to meet Jacob and kissing him. Uh, let me read this correctly. The rabbis teach that Esau running to meet Jacob and kissing him was a threatening behavior, especially with the 400 men. And that the kiss implied fangs or teeth marks left in Jacob's neck. Jacob apparently knew uh, Esau wasn't sincere in his friendship since he did not go to meet him as he said he would. He does not follow Esau. He stops in Shechem. What is the point of of using such a procedure as the lot to identify the culprit with respect to uh, Achan? What is that teaching us about God and his dealings with us? Would that not have taken some amount of time to narrow it down? Absolutely correct, Sharon. Sharon, it's going to take time. How much time does it take to run a lottery to figure out who's guilty? And knowing his unmasking is coming, wouldn't Aiken have thought to have just raised his hand and confessed to being the guilty party? Excellent question. Almost took it right off the page that I wrote before I read your letter. It struck me the grief... Joshua exhibited when dealing with Achan and made me consider how Yeshua might be grieving over one of my sins. And that was uh, very well done. And uh, Sharon, we appreciate all your questions. Now, last week uh, during the sermon postgame, we had a half dozen of you come up here, especially uh, Kathy and John. They're not here today. Uh, but we had a half dozen or so gather up here and pretty much went through all these questions that Sharon asked, almost one, one by one. And thus, I, I was really uh, just struck by Sharon's letter. I found it remarkable. I, I went through the church looking for listening devices. But I, I have noticed uh, other that uh, we probably have just successfully made her to be like us. Uh, and for that, we are to be congratulated. <laughs> or maybe she was weird before she came to Cliffside. Huh? In any event, 
I thought I'd be prudent to take some of these on today since they are bubbling up in the cauldron of soup that I'm stirring. And that is Romans 9, which we are, and therefore Joshua 6 and 7. I hope you see the connections between the two. There's not just 12 questions here. There are thousands of questions. Sharon just barely got through the surface, and so will we. We're going to do a little. We're going to leave so much behind, but at least you're going to know that there's issues, and that's what we're going to try to do. Okay, Sharon's first question. Um, what was it here? Let me get the letter back out. Uh, the unpardonable sin question. And it's not unpardonable sin. That's a church or um, that's kind of a colloquialism. The church has been using that for hundreds of years. Uh, it really is in the Bible. It is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And you hear me say all the time, it's impossible for an individual to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. As it requires that God be present in front of you. It requires that you be a nation. It requires that you reject him as the Messiah of your nation on the basis that he is really Satan and not God. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is not an individual sin. It is a national sin. And uh, uh, the nation of Israel committed it. So how is it unpardonable, Sharon is asking, or if if there will be a time when God restores Israel. Okay, the, the answer to that, I hope this is an answer that will work for you. The Holy Spirit in Romans, which is Paul writing in Romans 9 and elsewhere, is pounding away. Paul is repeatedly over and over again stating that simply being a physical descendant of Abraham does not ensure individual salvation. Circumcision without belief in the person, the name of Jesus Christ, accomplishes nothing with respect to salvation. Paul keeps pounding it. You're a Jew, you're a circumcised Jew, doesn't mean you're saved. And thus there is essentially two Israels. He sets up two Israels, Paul does. There's a physical Israel, and then there is a believing remnant Israel. Or to rephrase it, there's physical descendant Jews, physical descendancy Jews who do not believe God is Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ is God, who do not believe. And then there are physical descendant Jews who do believe that. Probably about 250,000 in the United States. And God extends his mercy, his salvation on those who believe. And he does not on those who don't believe. That's what Romans 9 is saying. So there is a believing nation of Israel and an unbelieving nation of Israel. One has rejected Christ as God as the Messiah, King of Israel, and one has accepted Christ. Okay? That's what's going on. I'll try to tie this all together in a minute. Question two. What is the meaning of Jacob's wrestling or Jacob's limp? What's the meaning of that? Why did Christ change his name from heel holder to struggles with me. Because that's what he calls him. Struggles with God. Struggler with God. Used to be heel holder. Now he's struggling. Struggler with God. I, I did address this a while back, a few lectures ago. Uh, obviously, I didn't get it through very well, so let me say it in a different way. It's impossible to hold on to Christ. It's impossible. You can't hold on to him. How powerful is he? How weak are you? You think he can't break your grip? Get a grip. 
I worked hard on that. I got no response at all. In the internet, they think I'm hilarious. And I do have a laugh track now, as you know. And this would have been the perfect time. <laughs> You're not going to beat God at arm wrestling. Don't put your dividend check up. Do you know, by the way, how much your dividend check is going to be this year? Have you found out? You want me to say it to the Australians? Yes, it's going to be between 1500 and $2,000. Don't we love the fact that Bernanke and now Yellen are buying uh, stocks and we have this hyperinflation in the stock market and we've pumped it full of, this what, is it 16,000 now is the Dow Jones average? That benefits us little Alaskans and we will get our $1,500 and what will you buy with it? That's correct, a gallon of gas, a loaf of bread, a gallon of milk maybe. Won't that be great? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, enough of that. You cannot beat him at arm wrestling. He must hold on to us. You can't beat him at any wrestling. So it can't be about the wrestling. It's not about... And I did ask the question of, is he wrestling for his salvation? Or is the fact that he's saved is impacting the wrestling? Whatever the wrestling is. And in that case, it was probably literally he is wrestling. But what does it mean? Christ promises to hold on to us. He has to. That's his promise. He's the only promise keeper there is. Don't make people mad. Don't join any organization that calls themselves promise keepers. They can't keep a promise. What's the matter with you for thinking such a thing? Join the organization that calls themselves promise breakers dealing with the implications and the consequences of that. There's your group. At least you'll have something of value. Jacob's wrestling cannot be a symbol of physical capability or some religious physical work. Salvation is a belief process. It's contrasted with a works process, Romans 4.3. The two processes are absolute opposites. One results in salvation, the other does not. There's no such thing as works-based salvation. So now, I'm hoping you're seeing how Jacob's wrestling, what it is, why it is central to Romans 9 and the Matthew 12 discussion of a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If the wrestling is not to be interpreted as wrestling because it's impossible for it to be wrestling, then what is the wrestling? Does that make any sense at all? I hope not. I didn't intend for it to. Why did Jacob limp? Why did Christ change his name, Jacob's name? I kind of answered those questions. I answered what wrestling means. If you defined what wrestling correctly means, then you will understand why the name change and why the limp. And if you can't put that together, come next week, because that's when I'll do it. Next question of Sharon, number 10. Esau as a type of Christ or God. Sharon points out that the unbelieving Jewish commentators have declared that Esau was a what? Esau was a vampire. It's called the vampire position. It's really not, but that's what I call it. And if I call it that enough, eventually maybe it'll be called the Esau vampire position because they really do believe that Esau, they teach that Esau came running up there. His whole point was to bite him on the neck. 
And he had 400 guys behind him, and the whole point of those 400 guys was to kill everybody. That's the vampire view. It's of an ancient view, and it gets a lot of respect, which is, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that. Let me first say I'm never surprised when Christless, and I don't say that well because of my over-enlarged tongue, so I'll write it, Christless commentaries come up with Christless conclusions. I think that's the foremost problem in the church today. What do I mean by Christless commentaries? I mean this, very, very, very few teach today Christology, which is finding Christ in the Old Testament. If you don't find Christ in the story of Esau and Jacob at Genesis 33, then you will have a vampire position. That's what will happen to you. You'll be so far wrong, you can't figure out that you are wrong. There's nothing worse than being wrong and not knowing that you're wrong. We call that a teenage boy. In this case, the vampire position. Failing to find Christ in the Old Testament will lead immediately to a total lack of what the Old Testament means. So I fully expect Jewish commentary, however ancient it is, to be completely wrong because it is Christless. And the Bible, the Old Testament, is Christ. As to Esau, I note that, this is my response to that, the vampire position, I note that Jacob approaches Esau with deference. He's coming in saying, I am your servant, you are my Lord. He's got his head down, he's bowing to him. That is how he is approaching Esau. Esau does not approach Jacob that way. Esau has 400 men. Jacob is afraid of those 400 men because he doesn't know what they're for. He thinks what? That they're coming to kill him. What Esau does... In front of his 400 men, he gets down and he does not approach Jacob with deference. He runs to meet him. So you have a man, the king of these men behind him, get off of his horse and run towards his brother, hug him, cry and weep over him and kiss him. And it says, so he runs to Jacob with emotion and it says, Both men wept. Both men wept. Not Jacob wept and Esau's biting him on the neck. It doesn't say that. It says both men wept. That's the obvious question. Where is Christ in the story? Is he the one coming with deference or is he the one running with emotion? Hugging and kissing. Which one is Christ? These are twin brothers, by the way. Anybody have twins? Let's all bow in front of the ones that have twins. This is the greatest parents of all time. Yes, I know Cain and Abel. The twins have a special bond. And as another aside, Jacob calls Esau in Genesis 33.10, he calls Esau the face of God. I have seen you and it is the same as seeing the face of God. 
Would he say that to somebody who's trying to bite his neck off? How silly. Who would come up with such a position? Someone that has a Christ-less approach to the Old Testament. Find Christ in that story and you solve it. Okay? What is the purpose of the 400 men? What are they? Were they killers coming to kill? No. What were they going to do? They were going to witness what Esau did. Christ is coming with his saints, isn't he? And then Luke 15:20, it's very important to to see the exact same wording, understand Esau. Understanding Esau is very important to uh, comparing 33:4 of Genesis to 15:20 of Luke. And then when you got that, you figure out Romans 9 because you know what the actual uh, symbol of Esau is. And when you got that, you can get back to Joshua 6 and 7 and then on your way back to Exodus 4 and it all fits together for you. Now, now we're to the fun part of Sharon's letters, letter, her questions about Achan. I don't have time to read about Achan, but for those who weren't here or those who've missed those lectures, uh, Achan decides to steal something that belongs to God and, uh, no one seems to know that he did it. And no one seems to really know what it is until he reveals what it is. But God says there's an accursed thing. Don't touch it. If you touch it, you're going to be cursed. You're going to trouble Israel. When you get into Jericho, don't touch this. He calls it devoted, dedicated to him. Leave it alone. So that's how we start. It's the accursed thing or the devoted to God thing. And this is a huge, and I mean huge, uh, pile of questions that comes with this passage, this chapter. Again, when you approach it, find Christ in it the same way you do with Esau and Jacob, and you'll solve it. If you have, find the Christologies. Find Christ in the story. It's always beyond critical. Without finding Christ, there's no hope that you'll ever understand uh, Joshua 6 and 7 or Achan. And last Sunday, I connected Achan. I said, find also, find the comment or the uh, compliment in the New Testament. Where, Achan is a thief, right? About to, and he gets caught. He's a caught thief facing execution. So what do I gotta do? I go to the New Testament and I find a caught thief facing execution. Where's that? I got two of them, don't I? And I compare, connected Achan to the second thief on the cross. I, I could connect him to the first, to both of them, and I probably will next week. And I hope you see why I did that. Searching for the New Testament compliment. Achan is a thief, stole something that belonged to God. A garment, a covering, a robe. When you start talking about a guy is stealing a garment, a covering, a robe, you're headed into where? There's people that go to a wedding ceremony, they're in the wrong garment covering robe, aren't they? So go find those things. I've got a garment, I've got a robe, I've got a... Uh, a kingly covering, covering of a king. Who gets one of those? Raise your hand if you think you're going to get one of those. Never raise your hand here, but consider, are you going to get a royal robe, robe and win? What if you show up with your own robe? How are things going to go? Okay. Aiken a thief, stole something that belonged to God. He, he stole a garment. He stole gold and silver. And now he's facing execution. And he is standing next to who? Yeshua. Yahshua. Same word. 
standing next to a type of Christ. A thief is facing execution. And Yeshua begs him to confess before he's executed. Gives him a chance to confess before he faces execution. Why? Why? We got him cold. Shoot him. We don't need him to confess. But God asks him to confess. I made a little jump there. It seems natural that I would look at Achan side by side with the other two thieves that were with Christ, right? And then I asked, what does the confession of Achan have to do with glorifying God? Because Joshua says you've got to confess to glorify God. And, and then I asked, which covenant of God? God said, don't touch this thing. You're going to violate a covenant. And eventually he does say, you have transgressed one of my covenants with you. Which one? You have eight to pick. Not really, because some come later, like the Davidic covenant. So that narrows it down for you. The new covenant. Which covenant was transgressed? by the stealing of the devoted thing. And eventually, mostly afterwards, when everybody came up here, after time expired and we're in extra time, questions about the sons and daughters. Were they also killed? Are they the them that got burned? Were Achan stoning and then Achan's burning? Why was he burned and then or stoned and then burned? Deuteronomy 24.16, it says that you cannot execute the sons and daughters for the sins of the father. Did that get violated here? And if it did, Why? Acor Valley, why did they name it Acor Valley? What's the word play? Um, the Yerman and the Thuman, the casting of lots to catch Ab- or the casting of lots to catch Achan. There's two views that it was the Yerman and the Thuman. Some say no, it was the casting of lots. And so all of that happened uh, last week at the uh, post game, as I said. And, and I'm going to take a few points here, maybe. Oh, hopefully, if I can. Got to go fast. Obviously, Achan stole the garment and he hid it and he buried it. And I want you to consider his thought process, or what I like to call the anatomy of the crime here. God says there is a devoted or an accursed thing in Jericho. It belongs to me. Abstain from it. Don't touch it. God says this. And Achan now goes, I'm, I want it. As soon as he sees it, he goes, oh, wow, I'm taking that thing. He just heard God say, don't touch I'm taking it. What's he think? God won't know? Does anybody think that they're going to do something and God won't know? Does anybody think they're going to do something and God won't care? Oh, yeah. All of us. Will God catch you and me? Yes. You're going to confess, too, by the way. It's always a good idea to do it now. Did Achan think, God will not know, God will not catch me, or God will do nothing? And by the way, what would what was to happen to the garment if no one could touch it? How do I get it out of there? Do we run in and go, there it is? Well, we find out, obviously, somebody can grab it. Who can grab it? We got into a discussion, Bill the Cow and I and a few others got into the discussion of uh, the Ark of the Covenant, why it is that the Philistines could touch it. And the Jews, especially the priesthood, could not. If they did, they died. Isaiah, right? So what was the plan? Run into the rubble, find the accursed things, and bring it to Joshua. Is that the plan? 
I previously, I think last week, suggested that Achan was perhaps given the task to bring it to Joshua because of his rank, because of his authority, because of his uh, reputation. So if I'm right about that, think again about the steps. Achan found it. How many are with him? How big is the detail? Don't you think about that? Is he by himself? He's the only. How many people ran into uh, Jericho? Two hundred thousand. Achan is the one that finds it. Is he by himself? What are the chances he's, how big is Jericho? So you gotta solve that. He finds it. What does he tell Joshua? Does he tell Joshua that he didn't find it? There is no accursed thing. I know we all heard the speech. That's God's voice. God says don't touch it. Then find it. It's not here. God must have what? Yeah, I must have been mistaken. Thought it was in there. You know, he's wrong. Probably someplace else. How does he do this? And by the way, when he didn't, how many people knew there was an accursed thing in there and you couldn't touch it? Everybody. Did they talk about it? What if I said to you, you have little girls and little boy children now, and you say, there is a something in that bedroom. I'm not going to tell you where it is or what it is exactly, but don't you touch it. What are the first things that Christopher and Eric are going to do at age four and six? They're going to get together and go, I wonder what's in there. Eventually, they're going to break the door down and grab it. And that's when the videotape comes in. Anyway, point is, how did he hide this crime? What did Joshua think when when he doesn't have the accursed thing? What did the nation of Israel think? Because essentially he has to come out with a story. Somebody has to come out with a story and say there is no accursed thing in it. In there. So move along. I got how many dead soldiers? 36. Why 36? Why not 37? Why not 35? Why not 40? Why not 100? Why do I have 36? I got a few thousand that attack. I got 36 dead. Why that number? Who are these guys? I want to know what. I want to know their names. They die in the next battle. Those are the ones that are killed. I want to know what their names were. I want to know what their rank was. I want to know what their military duty assignment was. That's how I think. I also want to know something else. What's that? Do they, are they part of that detail? Do they know Achan? Did Achan know them? Just imagine that for a second. He's sitting on the accursed Babylonian garment. The army goes out to fight another battle. And 36 guys are dead. And they're all his men. Does he go? Is he part of that fight? Every one of his guys are dead. Is he like a platoon leader? Lieutenant? Maybe captain? 
Why these 36? Who are they? Innocent bystanders? What do you think? You can come up with your own idea. To summarize, God says there's an accursed thing. Don't touch it. Achan covets it. He steals it. He does the exact opposite of what God says. So jumping ahead again to speed up, God then takes a tribe. He does this three times. He takes a tribe. He says, we're going to find the guy that took the accursed thing. Bring the tribes in front. Now, there's hundreds of thousands of people. And so he picks a tribe out of that those 12. And that, of course, is Judah. And then out of that tribe, he takes a family. And then out of that family, he takes a man. He does it all with either the human and Thuman. Or he does it with casting lots. And he takes out Achan. Now, Achan has been standing there uh, going through this process. That's as Sharon's uh, commentary there. Beautifully thought through. How long does it take to march those 12 tribes by and pick that family out and get to Achan? Takes a long time. And he's, he's keeping his mouth shut. What is he thinking? 36 men are dead. His men, he says nothing. His tribe is taken and his family is taken, or his household, and then finally him, and he says nothing to stop the process. Does he think, okay, first we got, we narrowed down to Judah. They'd be like you. Somebody in Alaska has taken something that belongs to a very powerful person. We've narrowed it down to South Anchorage. Are you nervous? You go, hey, it's me. Here it is. No. Okay, we've narrowed it down now to your family. Are you going, it's probably my brother over here. Is that your plan? And then finally they grab you. It might take a few days. So, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't stop this. Why not? What is Achan thinking? That he won't be caught? That God won't catch him? What makes a man stand there silent? Does he act shocked? Oh, it's my family? No, it's got to be Dave then. He's, uh, he's the bad one. And finally, God ends this, and he takes Achan. And Joshua says to him, and I won't read it, but he says, Give glory, confess, and give glory to God. How is it that his confession is going to give glory to God? Well, let me answer it this way. Achan has effectively been saying that God lied or God was wrong about the cursed thing being in Jericho. Therefore, God is not right. Therefore, God is not omniscient. And if he is not right and he is not omniscient, then he cannot do what? Cannot judge sin. Cannot save. Omniscient, he doesn't have the power, right? But now Achan confesses after he is caught. And all of Israel now knows that there really was an accursed thing. God was right. He wasn't mistaken. There is a devoted thing that belongs to God. And messengers, how many messengers do you think, went in there and retrieved the accursed thing and they brought it out and they laid the garment in front of God. And all of Israel witnessed it. And then what comes next is Joshua 7, 24 through 25. And there is great dispute over that. i got to kind of read it. We've got a little bit of time before I shut it down because I started late. Uh, let me read it to you. 
And you should read this yourself. This is some of the most amazing scripture, I believe, in the entire Old Testament. So let me read 7:24 through 25. I'll start at 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran into the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver under it. Big question. How to deal with it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. They're the Lord's stuff. Here's your stuff. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Remember up here, Joshua says to Achan, verse 19, Now, Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Make confession to him and tell me now, after you've watched this whole process of taking and taking and taking till we get to you, tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. There's a wonderful picture of Christ there. Find Christ in the story. Christ is saying, confess. Do not lie to me anymore. And Achan does not lie. He is, however, still executed. Just like who? That thief says, you are God, I know you're God. Achan, I will submit to you, said, I know God is God. I will submit to you that remember me, you are the rememberer, and Achan's confession have a relationship. Did Christ save that second thief from physical death? Eventually, but not at the time. Died Right there next to Christ. Achan dies. However, he confessed first. What is the significance of that? Didn't save him from physical death. Were the daughters and the sons burned and stoned with the thief, with their father Achan? A lot of dispute. Some say yes. I think the key is the garment and the silver gold. So I'll read it again. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver and it. I substituted an it for garment. The wedge of gold, comma, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and and all that he had. What does that imply? Let me ask you a question. Whose garment is it? It's not Aiken's. 
All that he had does not include the garment and the silver and the gold because it didn't belong to him. Achan is stoned and that which belonged to Achan was stoned with him. So what's the obvious question? What belongs to Achan? Is the stuff in front of the and Achan's or is the stuff after the and Achan's? Does that make sense? I can see that some of it is not Achan's. What belongs to you? If you were caught for a crime, what would they burn of yours? What does God think belongs to you? Does he think that the children belongs to you? Does he think the animals belong to you? He says specifically the children are what? Mine. He doesn't destroy Nineveh because why? I'm sorry, Sodom and Gomorrah as well. Why? These animals are in there. So, belongs to Achan. Next week, we will go through who is them. By the way, who do I think is them? You have to come to church. I won't announce it. I'll do it next week. Who do I think is part of this? Yes, that's right. I got these guys. It's called the mystery of the 36. Okay, see you next week. Musicians, come forward.